Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Losses weekly podcast on all things thick. My name is Colin Lambert and with me from New York is Galen Stops. Before we start, Galen, I thought I'd give the um, listenership uh, just a, a small indication of the kind of torture and brutality that I'm put through <laughs> at this company. Because yet again, just 15 minutes before we are due to come onto this call, Galen has published a story. Something about CTAs doing okay? It can't be true, can it? August is another, yet another strong month for CTAs, Colin. <laughs> and regular readers of the magazine will remember that Colin Nostradamus Lambert wrote in the latter half of 2018 a strongly worded argument on why trend following is dead as a strategy. And for those who are keeping score, the Societe Generale trend index is now up 20% year to date. No, it's not. It's up 196 <laughs> now you're going to split hairs, Colin? <laughs> well, I don't have much else, do I? There's no other defense out there. Yeah, but I thought, thanks for publishing that one just before we sort of, you know, come on air, so to speak. I've, I've <laughs> been waiting Give me a nice little kick in the ribs. Yes. I know. <laughs> so, yeah, so one of your predictions is going to look very, very good. Well done. Moving on, um, I guess really, I, I, news-wise, it's been fairly industry-focused, but I guess the big thing... This week has been the, well, I guess, chaos in Westminster as Brexit's gone ahead. So we've done stock analysts, we've done technical analysts, we've done market strategists. Let's do political analysts and markets. It's quite interesting to me. The markets are handling it quite well. It's not a massive range because I think there's still people who are a bit unnerved. And you literally don't know what's coming next. But a couple of people have said to me that it's been a really good opportunity for sort of old-fashioned trading styles in some ways, whereby you look at it, you, know, you do all your reading, you do your research. It's not data-driven in any way whatsoever. You just look at it and go, yeah, I don't think he's going to get this through, therefore I'm going to buy sterling. What, what sort of, what's your experience and what's your feedback over there? Well, firstly, um, it's been exciting stuff, if nothing else. Um, I think um, well over here it's been hilarious because obviously being in the in the New York office, sitting there watching my uh, my BBC update live updates of what's happening, you know I'm just I'm suddenly getting excited because I'm shouting to the office, you know oh my goodness they they removed the whip from 21 people and uh, you know everyone's just looking at you like you're crazy like what on earth does that mean? And I have or to give what um, you're doing your private life. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, that's lower the tone. Here. Um, and uh, and I have to give kind of lengthy uh, lengthy briefings to everyone each morning about what just happened. But I'm furiously trying to remember my sixth form politics lessons about some of the more <laughs> arcane aspects of of how our political system works. Um, but in, in terms of markets, um, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying about good old fashioned trading. Um, I would have perhaps expected slightly more movement. Um, I don't know whether it's just because even though it's very exciting what's happening, there's still a lot of uncertainty about the end game um, or whether people are still focused on China and trade wars, which has obviously been a big story, or, or whether this is, you know, I think in general, I've been surprised how much, uh, you know, Brexit has failed to move the pound on occasions. Um, yeah, I mean... It's an interesting. We, we, yeah, we we had this week. We've had like maybe yeah, 150 points down and 400 points higher. Um, it's 
that's that's enough. You can do you can do some serious damage to your PL in that time is what I would say. And if you look at it in the context of what we've seen for the last you know, like three years, while this has gone on, and I couldn't believe it. I said to someone the other day, I said, it's more than three years since they had this vote, and Parliament still has not managed to actually get itself organised one way or the other. It's it's quite remarkable. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I obviously got a lot of mean reverters out there. I think the very fact that there are more macro traders trading it, um, and this would give light to the fact that, you know, the trend follows the 20% up this year. But I think, you know, the sort of circumstances around all the hedge funds over the last couple of years, if they've seen two, 300 points, they're looking at that in their foreign exchange terms and going, actually, that's a pretty good return. You know, if you look at what, if you look at a euro dollar market that's been giving me 20 points a day or, you know, um, or a dollar yen that's giving me even less, if I can pick up two, 300 points, then why would I not think about easing my position? Particularly, as you say, given the uncertainty. So I'm kind of not um, surprised by it. The thing that interests me now is going to be, who can predict these events? It's absolute carnage. I mean, you know, they're mystified in the US, you know, in your office, down here in Australia, they're just laughing because they've got they've found a system that's even more chaotic than theirs. Um, you know, this is the country, and this is the country that's actually stabbed six of its prime ministers in the back in the last twelve years. Sorry, five in the last twelve years, and they think this is worse. I mean, this is you know, this is quite remarkable. Um, but what will happen if Brexit doesn't go ahead, or if they call another referendum? Um, dude, look at it and think. Maybe the only way out of this is to turn around and say, look, Parliament can't, or Parliament can't actually decide this. Um, no matter what we try, no matter how the ele- a general election would go, Parliament cannot decide this. Therefore, it's got to go back to the people. And if that happens, what happens to Sterling then? Um, because yeah, we, had can... a, we had a 20-big tw- figure drop on the exit on, on Sunderland. Well, sorry, we had 10 big figures on Sunderland and then another 10 big figures after that. Um, if people think that they're going to stay in for some reason, would, the, would we see such? Would we see a massive rise? Be interesting. Um, yeah, and, and it's, it's not a. At this point, another election is not that unlikely. I don't think. No, it's <clears throat> and this is another one of these sort of silly political games that everyone goes through, isn't it? Where whereby you know the leader of the opposition is the first leader of the opposition in history to turn to turn down an election. Yeah, um, there's, there's all sorts of name calling going on. It's it, you look at it sometimes and think people vote for these people. <laughs> yeah. <Quite> remarkable. <laughs> but there you go. So yeah, so I think that'll be one to watch. And I think you know I, the good thing is for the markets um, to go back to one of our old favourite expressions: it's a known unknown. Yeah, they know the Brexit votes are taking place. They know there's a bit of chaos over there. So therefore. It can be a little bit of like you know, bin positions and react, or you can, as I say, try and preempt some of the some of the actions. Um, it's I, I kind of think because we know something's going to happen, that's calming things down. Um, but yeah, the, the big test would be if um, there was suddenly serious doubts raised over the UK's ability to leave the EU. Um, what would happen to the markets then? We shall see. Um, anyway, that is now. Um, I wanted to talk to you about uh, something you published yesterday, um, the future of finance on our website. Um, yeah. It was quite interesting to me because I, I looked at it and thought, actually, 
it's been quite a journey for the sort of you know, digital crypto um, markets, whichever you want to call them. Um, it's, as you say, six years in your piece, you say we've been writing about it. It doesn't seem that long to me, but it has been quite a journey, actually, hasn't it? And it's been, I think we'll look back at it and think it's, or will we look back on it and say this was our serious evolution period of crypto? Or do you think that evolution is really just starting to gather pace now that the markets are becoming mainstream? Well, it's it's interesting, right? So, so I wrote that piece off the back of we're um, the first panel of our Chicago event um, on day one on the twenty third of September is entitled, you know, is the future digital? Um, and, and it's it's fascinating because I mean, if you just look at at who's speaking on that panel, right? We have Jump Capital, which is the obviously the venture capital yep. arm of Jump. Uh, you know, obviously yep. a, a well established uh, institutional financial services firm. We have BNY Mellon, um, obviously one of the largest banks in the world, um, certainly the largest custody. Um, yep. Fidelity Digital Assets, the, the kind of digital asset arm of Fidelity. Um, and then we have CoVenture, which is kind of a newer, kind of a more asset management trading style, more crypto specific and focused. Uh, and then Outlier Ventures, which is again a, a V firm more focused on the, the kind of digital side. Um, but but uh, partnered by Rumi Morales, who obviously has a background in, will be you know background in mainstream finance, and will be familiar to yeah. many people in our audience. So it, that is indicative that list of nothing else of, of how far we've come. I was thinking about it when I, when we were writing up this panel. You know, we published our first piece on Bitcoin in 2013, and at first it was a curiosity. You know, there were lots of banks, other financial institutions putting out papers on Bitcoin. Um, because it was it was a novelty. It was it was something strange, and uh, they were all the research people were curious about the concept. And you know, they have to keep pumping out research on something. So this was a new shiny thing. Yeah. But very quickly, it became a, a taboo subject for them because of uh, Silk Road and Mt. Gox and all the scandals, etc. Right. Uh, I yeah. remember speaking, and then and then we had the blockchain hype. And I remember speaking to people in the banks who, you know, when they wanted to talk about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, they had to talk about blockchain. It was kind of a code word because if they used Bitcoin, they'd get, you know, shouted down in the meeting and told to shut up and no, we don't touch that stuff. But if you but if you talked about blockchain, it was kind of, you know, it's just this pure technology thing divorced from the, the cryptocurrency aspect. And so that was seen as, as good to call about, talk about. And that was, you know, um, by, by banking standards, blockchain was sexy. So that became kind of the big thing. And then yeah. you know, 2017, we saw that kind of pendulum swing back when you know, maybe some of the, the grand block schemes that everyone was kind of talking about didn't really come to pass. And suddenly, you know, the crypto is spiking up. Everyone's talking about it. All these clients are asking them, you know, what are they doing about it? Um, and so it's just from, from the, the stage of, of six years ago, even 2014, where it was everybody was very anti-crypto. And here we are in 2019, you have giant banks like HSBC is doing settlements, affect settlements via blockchain. You have uh, David Morgan, who, you know, the CEO famously declared Bitcoin to be a fraud, having their own internal digital currency. And you have central banks even talking about or eyeing up the, the potential for digital currencies. I mean, that is a, a remarkable turnaround, I think. 
in a, in a very short amount of time. I mean, it, it's hard to think of, of another asset that went from being so roundly of, um, dismissed to suddenly becoming something that everyone wants to, to or have in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, the only thing I would... I, I, I think you're right. I can't think of one off the top of my head, but um, I'm sure there's listeners out there that can. But the only thing I would say is that I'm still not convinced that Bitcoin and like cryptocurrencies have permeated the mainstream the way maybe some of the evangelists thought they thought they would or hope they would. I, I, I do see the crypto world or digital world, I think to be more accurate, to be more around the infrastructure. Um, and I think you're right to highlight, you know, settlements and payments. I think that's where this will be, and I use the word revolutionised. I think, um, you know, with with due care, because I think it will be a revolution. Because, you know, if you look at it, you've, you've got the central banks looking at atomic settlements. Um, you've got real time settlement, you know, pretty much there already. Everyone can track their payments on the blockchain. I see the acceptance in the mainstream being more around that than trading a cryptocurrency still. I still think there's problems with the liquidity around that. Um, the central bank digital currencies, well, frankly, all it is is, you know, well, well I think the, was it the Riksbank issued e-krona, didn't they? But the only thing they do, they just don't do it in real-time money. It's like, you know, how long have we been tapping and going for our, our teas and coffees in the morning at the coffee shop? Um, I can't remember the last time I paid for any service in cash. That is a digital world. So I'm not convinced around the cryptocurrency thing yet i'm there to be um you know turned and turned on that subject but i do think you're right around the 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 infrastructure piece of it i think that's um it is so, totally the future where i could see the, the cryptocurrency piece taking <clears throat> off is um on the the cross-border payment side i mean the, the reality is yeah. that the, the payments in your own country there's not a problem it's very easy to pay for stuff no. In the country, and so so there's no there's not really a problem to be solved there. I think I think cross border payments. It's still, uh, and and maybe this is a, a product of me being a millennial, but I I find it utterly utterly bizarre that in a world where I can online the the geographic boundaries don't exist, and I can I can send information, I can talk to anyone, I can you know, move, you know, attachments from A to B or anything from A to B online seamlessly. The fact that my my Venmo account stops at the, the US border seems utterly bizarre to me. Um and so I think yeah. either I think I, I think either either the, the existing uh unless there's a way to kind of reconstruct the existing cross border payments rails um, yeah. I think I think cryptocurrency of some description is an obvious solution there. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, the thing is, if you have one, if you have a single cryptocurrency that's accepted, then you don't need cross-border payments. Yeah, but then you have to, as Mark Carney said the other week, you have to then totally upset the whole international financial system. Um, I'm, I'm 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 pretty sure there's no politicians brave enough to do that, and I'm. Pretty sure that I think there's a few central bankers that would really want to be the person in the chair driving that change. Um, and, and yet, and yet, but, Facebook's going to give it a stab. 
Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, <clears throat> and I wonder if their reaction would be... And, and, by, the way, and by the way, that's not a comment on, on how successful I think that um, that project's going to be. But um, I, I definitely think that, that if the 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 cryptocurrency element kind of taken away from security tokens, et cetera, is going to go. I think that's the area that's obvious and, and right. You know, you know, when you saw a few years ago, there were a few gimmicks about, you know, various stores accepting Bitcoin, et cetera. Yeah. I don't think that's, that's not how this is going to go forward. I think, um, I think it's very much, again, the cryptocurrency side, but I also think there's a lot of interesting things happening around security tokens, Still waiting on this crypto ETF, but I the think, pro- I the think... problem with the ETF is still going to be the underlying markets, isn't it? They've got to get the underlying markets yeah. a little bit more liquid, a little bit more robust, and probably a little bit less volatile. I, you're totally right on the pay on the you know day to day spending thing. To go back to my point, you know every time I I go down to the local grocery store or the butchers down here, and I tap my card, I'm paying with the Aussie dollars, and you know that's basically digital. I would argue we've been a cashless society for I don't know how many years because um, you know chip and pin was in the UK 15 years ago. You know, tap and go has been there for at least more than five years. Um, you know that is a digital currency in many words. As I said earlier, uh, we don't you know, use cash anymore. And and big news, Colin, it's in the US mm. now. I lost my wallet the other week. I got a new card, and I can use it to tap and go. Now the catch is none of the merchants have tap and go yet, but you know. <laughs> Progress. Welcome to the 21st century, the United States of America. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I, it will be an interesting one, you know, um, to to look at in terms of like, you know, where the evolution really goes from here. Because I think, you know, in currency terms, you can you can digitize any currency you like. We've I honestly think we've already in most countries we've already done it. And therefore, it won't take long to do it in other countries. So I'm not sure whether you need the central bank digital currencies as such. All you need to do is digitize their existing ones. Um, but we'll see. <clears throat> I wanted to move on because listening to you talking about the panel in Chicago, it made me reflect on, I guess, when I first joined P&L in like, you know, mid-2001. And one of the first things we did was um, we had our second conference um, in London. And... You're talking there about the type of firms that were on this, that are on, that are on our panel in Chicago. And you know, we looking back then, we had like you know, we had a bank, um, we had a corporate, we had a hedge fund, and we had a platform. And the platform was the fintech. Um, you know, as now, <laughs> you know, the platform, the platform was you know, was the was the person on the speaker on the panel who was going to disrupt everything. Yeah. And we looked at this and thought, wow, this is this is a big revolution. Now you've you've published something um, as part of our 20 year anniversary piece for the next issue of the magazine. It's um, it's live on our website now. Um, and it looks back at that e revolution, doesn't it? And I, there are kind of similarities to me between what's happened in crypto world and what happened in the early part of this century for me in the FX in the FX. Yeah, so, so the piece is really so when PL was launched in nineteen ninety nine, right, it was right as kind of the the kind of e commerce thing was just taking off, right? Um, you know, one of the people I was speaking to was talking about kind of being in a bank then and kind of the e trading kind of the moment it went from it went from being a project to like this is the strategy, right? Um, yeah. and then and so then you had this kind of this shift towards e trading 
you know, you had more kind of, uh, you know, EB kind of grew out of that API. You know, markets became more globalized as a result. And this resulted in kind of an explosion of FX trading volumes. And, you, you know, you can see that in the, the BIS from, you know, 2001, it goes from, I think, kind of just over um, well, 1.2 trillion. You know I mean? yeah, yeah, it's 1.2 trillion. Do you hit that kind of that watermark in uh, 2013 of 5.3 trillion, right? So that's yeah. in 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 12 years, that's a, a massive increase, right? Um, yeah, and and that was fueled by this kind of e-trading uh, revolution. But there were kind of a few interesting aspects that, that came out of that, which is uh, yes, we had this growth in volumes, but even while volumes growing over that period of time number of liquidity providers in the market um, diminished rapidly. Uh, you know, I spoke to one you know, hedge fund who talks about, uh, you know, they had you know, 40 banks up on the board and they were kind of trying to ping them to figure out who was good in what pairs or what time zone. Um, yeah. And, you know, you had to do that in, on a regular basis to have a good idea of who was the best person to call on for which, uh, for which pairs, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and and also you know they were saying that's a huge amount of relationships to maintain. Um yeah. and, and you know, there's probably at least one person up there that was kind of you know you only called them if you needed to buy I don't know kiwi or something. Yeah. Um, but you have yeah. to maintain that, that anyway. Was the way it was. But, yeah, uh, but but even while we saw the number of LPs has gone way way down, um, the number of platforms in the intervening period went way way up. Um, so I think that. Yeah. And that's one interesting uh, thing to consider after that, which is, you know, it, it, it's interesting when you consider kind of the narrowing of LPs, but the widening of places where they're putting their liquidity to. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting one. I mean, I think the the EFX thing did revolutionise or you know, empower that growth in the market. Um, I think. Sometimes we underplay the role that prime brokerage played, played in it. I think prime brokerage gave that market access and gave more people the opportunity to actually trade FX, which I think also, yeah, that price visibility from the e-screen is important, don't get me wrong. But the fact that they could actually go and play in the same liquidity pools, thanks to PB, I think gave a, you know, I mean, the big jump was probably 07, 04 to 07 or 07 to 10 maybe. Um, and that was around that time when a lot of the electronic trading firms, the HFTs, came into the market thanks to PB, um, and their technology was better. And I kind of think that then led to one of your other themes there about a lesser number of LPs, because before that, a well-regarded regional bank with type for risk would have a dealing desk that was putting prices into the market. They'd be providing liquidity. They'd be taking positions. You know, they'd be running risk. And they kind of got eaten up by the non-bank firms. Well, yeah, when we worked out latency arbitrage and said, okay, you know what, you're not going to play that game anymore. Or if you do, you're going to play on this platform where you're going to play with each other. Um, the the HFTs, those that were good enough, turned to market making. And they've kind of eaten up you know, by tipping and being top of book and, and, and then building their risk profile, where some of them have. They kind of took away that second-tier franchise, didn't they? So... Yeah. I think that sort of contributed to, to your thing. One one thing I one thing I would observe though, I think if you're a buy side trader now, you still have a challenge of probably not forty, but you have the challenge of like, well maybe I've got you've got to choose between thirty different channels now. 
And I say that because, yes, there's only maybe seven or eight um, institutions that are really offering you, you know, seriously, you know, sturdy liquidity or services, but they've all got four or five algo strategies. So the change now, it used to be the buy side trade. I mean, I, I did this in my job when, when I was on the buy side. You know, you'd look at it and go, okay, we're going to do something. We're going to do something in Canada. These guys are really good at Canada. You know, we're going to do something in the Swiss. Let's go to these guys because these guys are really good. Now the buy side trade is looking and going, okay, I'm doing something in this currency pair. In these market conditions, what algo am I going to choose? And if they have, you know, particularly from the public platforms, you know, where they have the algos listed under the bank name, you've got a choice of 30 channels. So the, the choice is still there. The skill set to be able to pick the right channel is still valid on the buy side. I think it's just, you know, it's just a, I guess it's a testimony to the evolution of the market that instead of looking at which trade is going to make you the best price, you're now looking at either which, you know, which, which LP is going to make you the best price in the amount or which LP's algo has better access to the market and is easier to use. So, so do you think then what you've just, you've just switched out choice of LPs to choice of channels then? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, because uh, to your so, point, like, there, there are less. 40 main L, there's not 40 LPs that, that this hedge fund is trading with anymore. I don't think. Oh no, no, absolutely not. But what I'm saying is that if you have, if he's, if that hedge fund is trading with eight LPs, those LPs are probably all trying to offer the hedge fund four different algo strategies, and that's 28. So that's 28 yeah. channels there. Now, to be fair, I mean, you could argue they're all going to be doing the same thing, you know, because a lot of them are calibrated the same way. Um, I still think the if you're shifting larger amounts and you're concerned about market impact, I still think you want to look at the big internalizers, and that kind of is the same decision as it used to be when – you're looking at, okay, so which one of these guys can make me the best price in Swissy? And he'll make me the best price because he's happy to hold the risk because he knows I'm not timing my trade, for, for instance. You know, you still, you still look at it now and go, well, yeah, I want to look at this and go, okay, which, which of these guys is going to access their internal book for these algos? Well, these, this one algo from each of the eight providers accesses their internal liquidity. So I want to pick one of those. So I've narrowed my choice down to eight. And then which one of them do I think has the best internalization engine? Then I narrow it down to two or three, and then I, then I take my pick. Um, there is still an element of the relationship around it, I believe. Um, it's just a different one. It comes down to if something goes wrong um, with my execution, how good how good is this LP at helping me out of that problem? And that will be no different to what it was 20 years ago. Um, and post-execution, which one of my providers is actually going to be um, giving me the best analysis. And I don't mean TCA. <clears throat> TCA is, you know, is standard. It can, you know, it's independent now. I'm looking in terms of let's have a look at how the algo performed for your order at that time of day and, and that size of order. Maybe you could have calibrated this. Maybe you could have calibrated that. And I think that's the relationship that we have now. So, yeah, I... I your point is is spot on. We we have huge more volume, more venues to trade on, and that is definitely from electronic trading um, and PB. But I still think for the buy side trader, there's a lot of choice there still, and they still have to do their research, and they still have to have a decent relationship with, um, you know, with their providers um, because you know, <laughs> they're talking about data now as opposed to risk. And, yeah. 
maybe one day it will change. I mean, I mean, on that note, actually, we should probably flag up our um, one of our or well, two of our panels in Chicago, our Ask the Experts panel. And I think it's basically because I think people don't want us to moderate anything anymore. We're probably getting too argumentative, <laughs> you and I. So they're asking the audience to argue with the panelists instead. But um, one of our Ask the Experts panel is actually on – we have um, a panel of ALGO experts, and we're inviting the audience and p readership and listenership to um, send in questions that they want asked. Yeah, if there's a question you've always wanted to ask about an ALGO, um, send it in. The email will be – either to Galen or myself direct, or you can use the mod, M-O-D, at forexnetwork.net address. Um, it will be an interesting session because, I mean, yeah, obviously you and I generally set the tone for a lot of these panels, don't we? And all yeah. of a sudden the audience is setting the tone. So I'm I'm already nervous. They show me up. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so it's interesting because we get – we get a lot of – obviously Algos has become just a, a major talking point in the industry at the moment. So, yeah. you know, we're trying to put kind of some experts up on there where, you know, the audience can ask them anything, either kind of live in person or by emailing in to the the, uh, the email accounts you just described. Um, and then the other one is, is more on kind of the compliance and regulatory side, because that's another area where, you know, we just get faced with a huge number of questions. Um, everyone yeah. is, everyone, whether they want to admit it or not, is moderately terrified of of doing something wrong, stepping out of line, doing something wrong without even realizing it um, in many cases, or something that used to be, particularly when you see with some of these cases, stuff that was considered just accepted practices. Um, You know, suddenly, years later, is you're getting pulled in front of someone and have to explain why you did that. Um, No one wants to be in that position. Um, And so kind of it was about putting some some real experts in front of them to talk to, talk to people and answer kind of any any questions? I mean, there are no dumb questions. I mean, they're certainly not going to be dumb with the newer questions, Colin. Exactly. <laughs> Very hard to be so, mate. Very hard to be so. But that's, but you see, that's the skill of a good moderator. That's how you get the audience involved. <laughs> As I always say, Makes ask a really dumb question. Yeah, ask a dumb question, and everyone in the audience goes, oh, "My question can't be as dumb as that." But then they put their <laughs> hands up. <laughs> it's, it's all psychological guidance. It's all psychological. It's all, it's all been part of the strategy, <laughs> huh? Exactly, a cunning plan that cannot fail for our uh, British listeners, the Baldrick plan. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, you know, for our, we will be flagging this up again in future podcasts and obviously by email shots and whatever, but um, if you've got a, you know, that burning question, you want to ask someone in the ALGO legal or compliance space, um, you know, even if it's just, so how would you approach, um, you know, a situation where, um, there's ambiguity. You know, what what should I do in a situation of ambiguity? Um, there, there's plenty of questions out there, so um, get them in, um, and obviously please turn up on the day and put your hand up and or tell us beforehand you want to ask a question, and we'll get the microphone to you. But um, that's us for this week. Um, thanks very much for listening. We'll be back next week. Um, let's close out, Galen. Where will cable be this time next week when we speak? And I should stress, we're Friday morning Sydney time. It's currently at. Oh, hang on. Sorry, my thing's gone. It's currently at 1.2320. What's your reckon next week? Mm. Uh, I'm going to say 1.238. Oh, so not a lot going on. <clears throat> well, uh, obviously, I've got to go I, balls I, to the wall. 
I, I think it, I think it will end up higher, but not a lot higher. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of structural shorts out there. Let's try and be analytical about this. This is a complete waste of time, of course. Um, well, obviously, <laughs> I've got to go um, uh, 143.81. <laughs> just so, just so I get, just so I get all the top side. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, um, uh, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week, and uh, I will now cut this recording off so Galen can abuse me for just ripping him off. Um, that's one all on this podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>